I read this story and thought, well, it's not often that butlers hit the headlines, <laughs> which I thought this should happen more, more butlers. Um, so my instant reaction was to think, well, what would Jeeves say? It's like, I really couldn't recommend assassination, sir. Why is my child writing about these white American people? Um, and she was like, why don't you write about something you know? Um, and I was like, give me back my masterpiece. <laughs> The difference between being a private person who writes and someone who is technically an author is not just a, uh, a, a name. It's a feeling that goes along with it, and I think the feeling is one of exposure. Yes. And it's like alchemy. It turns exactly. something that is kind of raw experience exactly. into an elevated form of kind of a, a piece of literature that mm. holds together. Welcome to episode six of the Love Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Elena Lapin, and our guests today are novelists Chibundo Onuzo, Olivia Sajic, and Ben Schott, and literary critic Lucy Scholes. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Dr. Chivundonizo. I am the author of two novels, and I also have a PhD in history, hence the doctor. I'm going to read you a little segment from a show that I'm putting on at the South Bank called 1991. And it's the story of my life so far in 10 essays interwoven with music and with song. Now, I haven't brought a band with me today into the studios, so... This will be an a cappella rendition, but imagine like a four-piece band, a choir, dancers, and then you have a little bit of an idea. <laughs> so here it goes. In the beginning, in the beginning, in the beginning. In January 1991, I was born in a hospital in Lagos under sterilised conditions. My father waited outside in the lobby and my mother waited inside in the delivery room. Labour, I've heard, is a lot of waiting. Waiting in between contractions, counting the hours and then the minutes and then the seconds between the slow ripping apart of the body. I don't know how long it took to travel down the birth canal, nor do I know what time I finally emerged headfirst into the world. What my mother attests to is the fact that I did not cry. I emerged with my eyes open, staring first at the doctor that caught me, and then at the mother I was passed to, and the father, admitted into the theatre at last, when the drama was over. I share a birthday with the actor Kevin Costner and the engineer and inventor Ray Dolby and the surgeon Daniel Hill Williams, who performed the first successful heart surgery in 1893. I make no comparison between our achievements. All I'm saying is, I'm sure they cried. I was born on 18th January 1991, and these are my Origins. Hey, you wanna fair, Jeremy? 
Chibundu Onuzo, welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. Thank I am you. so happy to have you here. What we just heard is a part or maybe the beginning of your performance. And I do want to talk to you about that. But first, maybe I'd love to hear a little bit about your writing, your books. Mm. You are 27 years old. Correct. And you are already the author of two novels. I have both of them here. The first one was called The Spider King's Daughter. You wrote that when you, or you published it when you were 21. Mm -hmm. And the second one, Welcome to Lagos, which was published two years ago, I think. Correct. Both by Faber. Yes. Now, tell me, why is Nigeria, why is Lagos such a hub of creativity? Hmm. I mean, that's a massive why. And I don't like claim to have some sort of answer for it. I think a lot of population helps. And I think also the history, the cultural history of Lagos is very rich. Um, so if you see someone like Fela, even though he grew up in Abelkuta, you know, he moved, his base was in Lagos, his Kalakuta Republic was in Lagos. And Lagos is a sort of it's a hub not just for Nigeria. It's a hub for the whole of West Africa and Africa in general. So people migrate to Lagos because of all the economic opportunities. But I think an extra of that or a side effect of that is that they also bring their culture and they also bring their stories and they also bring the way they dance and the way they dress and their food. And so Lagos ends up being this place where there's there's just so, so many different cultures to draw from. You were born there. Mm -hmm. And then what happened? Well... You know, I was potty trained. And then <laughs> I went to nursery school and primary school. Um, but I moved to England when I was 14. Mm -hmm. And I think I didn't really appreciate Lagos when I lived in Lagos. And part of the problem was, you know, I come from quite a middle class background. Both my parents are doctors. And you will see this in the lives of other children who grew up in households like mine. We consumed a lot of foreign material. So we watched a lot of American TV and I read a lot of British and American books. What did you watch? I watched like, so like Cartoon Network, yeah. Powerpuff Girls, Everything. Johnny Bravo, The Amanda Bynes Show, Tom and Jerry. Mm. <laughs> so those type of shows. Yeah. And then what it created in you was this sort of feeling that you lived in a province, that you lived in a place where nothing was happening and that you needed to escape and escape to the outside world. And you have to think about just the dislocation that it takes. You're living in a city with literally millions of people, millions. But because of the media you're consuming, you feel like you're living in a backwards <laughs> because um, mm. your experiences are not reflected in the media you're consuming. And which is why I think people growing up in Lagos now, they're really fortunate, I think, especially because of the cultural output that's coming yeah. out. You know, they're listening to Wizkid, they're listening to Davido, they're listening to Debanj. And what that means is that they get the sense of we're cutting edge as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I was growing up, it was all American music. It was mm -hmm. all Jaru and Ashanti and, you know, hip hop. And now it's the other way around. They are yes, look, actually yes. looking to Nigerian artists yes. to inspire them yes. and to work with. Yes. And so at the age of 14, you came to live in Britain. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Um, so um, I went to boarding school 
Um, what did that feel like? Well, I think, so this is the thing. So we arrived there and Winchester, and, and that's the thing, you know, you have been, you want to escape Nigeria, you want to escape Nigeria. And then you escaped Nigeria to Winchester. <laughs> like, it's, it's this like small town and there were no black people there. Um, there were three black people in my school. One was myself. <laughs> the other was my sister. And the third was a girl that we happened to go to um, secondary school with in Nigeria. So, like, it was just our friends and family were the entire black population. And nobody knew anything about Nigeria. And I think it's interesting. It's one thing to think that you live in a backwater. It's another thing to actually live and, like, people will be like, Nigeria, is that in South America? Yeah. <laughs> Or, you know, they'd be surprised at how well we spoke English. And we'd be like, well, you speak really good English as well, you know. And those kinds of things. People didn't really know where we were from. And I think moving to that environment made me want to write about Nigeria. Because up to that point, I actually hadn't been setting any of my fiction in Nigeria. Mm. Because what would happen was I'd just write all these stories with these white American children. <laughs> going back in time and just all sorts of things. And obviously, like, there's this whole idea of, you know, creative freedom and et cetera, et cetera. But it's not, um, it's not, um, it's not writing that comes from creative freedom. It's writing that comes from colonization. So it's, it's very different. It's one thing to say, I fully inhabit myself and I want to inhabit another character. It's another thing to say, stories like mine are not, are not worth telling or are not interesting, or even me, myself, that is my story. I'm not interested in the story. I need to write about something else for it to be interesting or valid. Um, so, yeah, I remember showing my mum my work when I was a 10-year-old, actually, my very first novel. And it was this novel with these white American children. And she read the first five pages, and I'm sure she must have read them thinking, I've done something wrong. <laughs> Why is my child writing about these white American people? Um, and she was like, why don't you write about something you know? And I was like, give me back my masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> As you, you, I, I, I'm just speechless. You wrote your first novel when you were 10. Well, I didn't finish it. I started okay. writing my first okay. novel when I was 10. But I was, I was a masterpiece. So you found your voice in Winchester, basically. Indeed. By looking back at Nigeria, mm -hmm. feeling the connection with, with your home, with mm -hmm. Nigeria, but living here, mm -hmm. living in the environment where you were, you and your sister and friend or relative, mm. you were completely different from mm. everyone else. So that made you think differently about how or what you wanted to write. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about what happens in Welcome to Lagos, mm -hmm. because I'd like to understand what happened between you writing this book, mm -hmm. this novel, and what you're doing now, the show you're putting on hmm. at the South Bank. Okay, so, I mean, Welcome to Lagos is my second novel. I mean, I wanted to write a novel with a large cast of characters. I'd finished The Spider King's Daughter, which only had two central main mm -hmm. characters. And yeah, I mean, I wrote Welcome to Lagos. And what happened was, so I'd had a book launch for The Spider King's Daughter, but, you know, it was a really, really nice book launch. It was hosted by my university and it was really great. But, you know, it wasn't me. It wasn't all yeah. me. It was just, you know, Chibundu has written a book and all these people have gathered for Chibundu's book, you know, um, and there's some wine and there's some canopies and, you know, the, I do a reading from the book, a few questions on the book and it's the end. And it was fine, but it wasn't me. So when Welcome to Lagos came around, 
um, my publisher was like, oh, okay, so you want to launch, um, you know, we'll start speaking to some bookstores, you know, we'll get some wine. I was like, no, not again, not again, no, just, just no. <laughs> Keep your cheese and your crackers. <laughs> so I was like, no, we are going to have a show. Great. So for my book launch, because um, I'm very, um, I'm in the choir in my church. I play um, the the keyboard, but sometimes I sing as well. Um, so I was like, okay, will you guys sing at my launch? And then I have some friends who are poets. Will you guys perform at my launch? And I had an actress. Will you read some extracts from my launch, from, from my book for my launch? So we had this thing in, it was even, it was just in a foyer space in the South Bank, where we completely like filled up the space. There was live music, there was dancing, and then there was the book launch where I read from Welcome to Lagos. Um, so the show yeah. is called 1991, yes. which is the year you were born. Yes, the year I was born. And as I understand it, I'm going to see the show, mm-hmm. so I should mention that we are recording this on the 2nd of October before your show actually takes place. Mm-hmm. It will be on the 21st of October, and I can't wait to see it. But what I'd like to ask you is, the writing that went into the show oh. is, is it sort of like autobiographical essays? What is it exactly? Yeah, there um, so it's eight essays. There are eight autobiographical essays. So what I've done is I've, I've the first half is chronological and the second half is, half is sort of thematic. So the first half, I start from my birth to my first year of uni. And then the second half is what it's like being published Mm-hmm. in the UK. Obviously, you're excited. Mm-hmm. But are you also in any way anxious about exposing yourself so personally on such a personal level, you know, like really opening yourself up? I mean, yeah. Do I feel like I'm being vulnerable, like putting myself mm-hmm. out there in this way? I mean, like I suppose. So, I mean, I don't mind like the stuff about my articles mm-hmm. Um I don't mind the stuff about my background and boarding school, et cetera, et cetera, because I've spoken about this stuff so much that just crafting it into an essay means that I can make my points more eloquently and just less, I can say, you know how sometimes people ask you something in an interview and you say it and then you get home and you're like, no, I wish I could have said it like this. So now I've had time to craft and package, you know, all my responses. Um, but I definitely, I have an article on relationships, which is like, um, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, so that one is about the fact that I'm celibate. And so, yes, that would be interesting to see. Give us a taste of, well, again, because of the timing, you know, your show is coming up. Mm. And by the time we air this, it will actually be just after. Mm. Nevertheless, give us a taste of, of what we are to expect in your performance. Okay, so I'm not the only person reading the essays. So I have a couple of actresses. Um, So there's going to be a band, um, four-piece band, maybe five, but at least four. Um, They're going to be singers, they're going to be dancers, Mm. and all of this is interacting with the text. Actually, what I'm most excited about, and I can say this because obviously this is going to air after, so it's not going to be a surprise, but I'm going to have a live drawing. So I'm going to have an... My friend is an artist respond to the text while it's being read. And I'm actually very excited to see what he's going to create. Because um, I was talking talking to someone at the South Bank and they were saying, you know, do you have any idea what he's going to draw? I was like, nope. (laughs) And if it doesn't work, we'll just move to the next essay. But yes, I'm very very excited to actually see what he comes up with. 
Yes. In 10 minutes, basically. That's really, really, really incredible. And after the 21st of mm -hmm. October, will there be repeat performances? I hope so. So, I mean, for now, I mean, we've just... Um, we're aiming for the 21st. So it's part of the London Literary Festival. Um, but, you know, it's... Um, Looking like it will sell out, I hope it will. Um, so yeah, if we had a good response um, and people react well to the show, yes, it's very possible that we'll be back. <laughs> uh, that would be that would be absolutely amazing. Chibuno Nuzo, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation for Love Reading. We were very happy to have you here, and we are looking forward to your next book and to your performance. Thank you. Hi there, I'm Olivia Sajic. I'm a writer living in London. I'm the author of Sympathy, a novel, and this is my um, latest publication. It's an essay called Exposure to be published by Peninsula Press. The residency began to seem auspicious. It provided a way to simulate progress. Simone Weil said that to be rooted is perhaps the most important and least recognized need of the human soul. I agree. I get carsick and anxious on planes. And yet, in a state of emergency, whenever I'm faced with the choice of fight, flight or freeze, I feel the need to move. Stillness cannot make me calm. It feels claustrophobic, as if the wrongness of a new normal is setting around me like cement. After one breakup, I joined the walks of a new friend whose baby would only sleep if pushed in a pram. The moment motion ceased, the baby would wake up and scream. Though her sleep-deprived parents suffered, I understood her choice of narcotic well. I thought that evading stillness, even familiarity, which can have the same effect, would help. If nothing else, it was a convenient place to live while I sorted out a permanent address. Then, a fortnight before my departure, the rejection was withdrawn. This was what I'd hoped for, for weeks, but it also made me afraid. It meant acknowledging the sinkhole that had appeared and staring down. My precariousness had been exposed. I had no instinct for who or what I could trust, including my own perception. Again, the uncertainty of whether to go. Brussels now seemed like limbo. I decided to pretend everything was fine and continue with the plan. To fake stability until the fiction became reality. Anything that did not feel fine was the product of my anxious imagination, which I feared had also been to blame for the rupture. Just as I had reread certain messages to make the rejection feel real, now I reread the retraction each time I thought about the knife that had for now been sheathed. I put back everything that had been disemboweled and held my belly to keep it in. I decanted all my liquids into miniature bottles and sealed them in a regulation plastic bag. I boarded the plane for Brussels Airport, Zaventem. At first, as in New York, I hardly stood out in my alienation, except that at night it was harder to eat out, and by day I lacked an obvious purpose. As others walked to work, I merely walked, looking for the brass scallop shells on cobbled streets marking the pilgrim route, the streets the Bronte sisters used, and later Teju Cole. I was wrong about the city, of course, and the organisers of the residency were excellent, warm and generous, happy to give me the invisibility I'd initially wanted. Determined to commit to the monastic existence I'd envisioned, I avoided them. I've never read this out loud before, can you tell? <laughs> In fact, I haven't really reread it since it got sent to the printers. Olivia Sajic, welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. Thank you for having me. It is incredibly 
wonderful and fascinating for me to be hosting you now on this <laughs> podcast because we have a previous we have life history <laughs> together. Um, you are the author of Sympathy. Yes. Your debut novel, which I published. Which I you published, and without which this essay would not have happened. Let's talk a little bit about what Sympathy was about in the first place. So Sympathy was a novel I started writing when I was 25. And I did it in this, initially at least, in this very kind of unstructured, almost free-fall like way where I had no real expectations of it going anywhere. I didn't really understand the kind of mysterious publication process or how one might go about getting an agent or really any of those steps. And now I'm in lots of ways glad I didn't. I think that the book that came out was sort of shaped by that free fall in lots of ways because it's about a story of a girl who goes to New York and is very much sort of loose from various structures and is sort of falling. And I now look back and wonder how that experience might have been changed if I had known what it was like to publish or I had, I don't think you ever can really know. It's mm. one of those things you can know abstractly, but then the, the difference between being a private person who writes and someone who is technically an author is not just a, 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 a name. It's a feeling that goes along with it. And I think the feeling is one of exposure, both for better and for worse. I think you feel very privileged and very lucky, of course. You feel like, isn't it amazing that all my dreams are coming true? And then if you're me, perhaps, and I think a lot of authors increasingly do feel this, you also suddenly feel like your consciousness is sort of divided a million times and it's out there for anyone to poke through. And it doesn't matter if no one ever does, <laughs> just the fact that they could. And also, I guess, it answers um, in a non-fiction uh, way some of the questions that that novel raised about surveillance, about identity, about how the internet is shaping all of us. Because I think one of the key things when I was writing this essay and in discussion with the editor who commissioned it was I felt like I did read you know, essays and books on what it's like to be a writer. And, you know, you get to a stage where it's like, um, I almost, you know, it's addictive actually reading about the habits of writers when you yourself are procrastinating. And it makes you feel somehow like you're part of the secret club. But there haven't been many essays or kind of how-to, if you like, in the age of the internet. And I think it's very different being an author now. Um, so I kind of wanted to not in terms of young authors, but simply new authors who are coming into this realm now in the age of Google, Amazon, social media, the expectations, the lack of privacy, all of those things which affect every single industry. I wanted to look at it from the kind of psychological perspective of a female author. So your Instagram is one of my favorite ones because A, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's just always... It, really, intentionally hilarious. Yes, it's always <laughs> hilarious, funny, witty, aesthetically oh. always interesting. Um, there's always a bit of you in everything that you show there. And yet, actually, having just read your essay, those were pretty difficult times for you. So where I would be finding things funny, watching you on Instagram, actually, that did not necessarily reflect how you felt. And that includes pictures from Brussels. Yeah. From your residency. Yeah, yeah. So your, your, so your photograph, I remember very, very clearly, it's, it's interesting how Instagram becomes like a personal archive, mm -hmm. both for you know, ourselves, you know, who put it out there and those who follow us and watch us, you mm. know. So in my memory, I have images of you in Brussels, 
I didn't know it was a retreat, really. I didn't quite understand what it was, but I knew you were in Brussels in an apartment and there were images of pages you had written and you were sort of collating them or pinning them or, you know, doing something with them. And you were kind of elated because it was the end of some creative phase. I wasn't mm. quite sure what. But that image of your pages in Brussels, in a in an apartment in Brussels, implies has, progress. <laughs> has stayed with me, you know. And now what I'm reading in your essay is an absolutely heartbreaking, oh. <laughs> beautiful, beautifully written depiction of deep emotional crisis. Yeah, I think... The problem is, you're right that it's an archive. I don't think it was simply a case of, um, it's not as literal as like faking sure. being organized so that it will transpire. I think it was more that I was aware that internally I had been given this huge privilege of a residency in Brussels to try and finish, or in my case, really start, or at least get on paper my novel, my next novel idea. And instead of being able to use that space and that privilege and that time that had been allocated to me, I had sudden like paralysis that I think in, you know, may even be called difficult second album syndrome in other people's mm. cases. But I think in mine was also interwoven with what I think of as my manageable, but nonetheless difficult anxiety, which I know is like a buzzword and I and I don't really um I don't really care. <laughs> it's I think it's something that everyone, one in three people experience in their lives. And I think I've always been an anxious person, but certainly a trigger was having the book come out. But it was also interwoven with other triggers. The breakdown of a relationship, uh, another relationship that then also broke down right after the book came out and having to move house several times. And I don't want to get out my small violin at all, but this triggered a lot of um, uncertainty, which basically made me feel very, very exposed, and hence the title. I didn't feel like I kind of knew who to trust or where to go, and and obviously the nature of writing is obviously it's it's incredibly freeing and liberating and all these wonderful things, but equally all of those things can turn on you and immediately become these almost tormentors, not just that you're lucky and that you, sh you, know, you should be like singing, all singing, all dancing um, writer all the time, but also that there is no safety net, there's no ladder, there's no kind of way to feel that you're making progress. So one way is Instagram. You can take a picture of these notes you have scattered all over your floor. And in a way, that is a, is a form of progress. Mm. But obviously, you know... And it is exposure. And it is exposure. But it feels like... But it's like... not really exposure because you're not actually... You're showing me something, as we all do on social media and especially Instagram. We, we're showing something that looks like something real. And it's not at all. Mm. It doesn't reflect what is well, actually it's a going. a reality, yeah. isn't it? This essay is absolutely uh, brilliant, honestly. First of all, the transition from your fiction writing into this particular non-fiction type of writing. Your fiction writing already had so much or has so much openness in it. You're so honest, so open, so free. And you just brought that into a personal essay format where you have to really go even beyond that because you are talking about yourself. You mm. cannot hide behind a fictional character. It's a two-way thing. You are both exposed to whoever you describe so beautifully how in this apartment in Brussels you are actually, 
you are on your own, but you're actually always surrounded by people looking in, builders, neighbors, um, you know, anonymous sort of creatures living across, you know, mm. some, some way. And, and one of my favorite images in this story is how you found some peace by watching elderly people living opposite your building. So you are looking, I don't know, into their windows. And then all of a sudden, what happens? <laughs> the house is, uh, is brought down by a kind of crew of builders and construction workers. Surreal. <laughs> yeah, Surreal. and then everyone so has to move out. So was it dismantled? Well, or it was, yeah, that, well, it was first reduced to a shell and you know, all belongings and, and furniture and whatnot were removed and then the walls were taken down and then it was a cloud of dust and by the end they even had sprinklers to kind of keep the dust mm. down because it was just a, you know, a gap tooth where um, where a building had been. But even, even if I'd not been in a city... I mean that's the thing. It's it's unusual, perhaps, to have a the idea of a writing retreat, which is not really what it was. It was a residency, but even that implies some kind of group communal thing. But it was very much in a city, and urban loneliness is very different, I yep. think, from if I'd been in the middle of I don't know Wyoming. But um, even then, the word exposure to me makes me think of being left outside to the elements, mm -hmm. and there's. Even, I think, when you are miles and miles from people, so you don't have that, you know, loneliness breeds in large groups of people type feeling. Even if you were in the middle of the desert, I feel like now, because we could always be contacted by someone or we could always sort of check in on the world, there's pretty much Wi-Fi. In fact, I have just been in the Sahara Desert and I did get Wi-Fi there. Yeah. But that means that wherever we are, we're always, in, a, in effect, feeling something like loneliness if we're not constantly in communication with people because the possibility exists and so if it's not being taken up or if someone's not contacting you it can sort of end up like you say I guess taking you into this otherwise inaccessible reality which it's not entirely negative I do think for writing that kind of loneliness and withdrawal into one's head can be hugely positive and I think when you're actually engaged in writing nothing could feel less lonely. You feel like completely at one with what's going on in your kind of imaginary world. Um, the, the, the type of loneliness I'm talking about is when you want to be writing and you're kind of locked out of it and there's this kind of dissonance, even because you think of yourself as a writer, you're trying to and you're trying not to feel like an imposter. But if you can't write, <laughs> then you're mm. not one and so suddenly you don't even have an identity. Is it scary or liberating? It was really scary and I had a major block about writing it. Now that I have written it and the response has been positive so far, um, it's not out yet, <laughs> but, but since it's... When is it published? It's literally published on Friday. Olivia Sajic, thank you so much. <laughs> thank for you for having me. <laughs> conversation with Love Reading. <laughs> thank you. Lucy Scholes, welcome to the Love Reading podcast and your brand new book post. Hi, Eleanor. Lovely to be here again. This time I am talking about a uh, essay collection, which mm. I don't think we've covered before. And this is a new essay collection by the Korean-American 
author Alexander Chi, and it is coming out from Bloomsbury. It was published in America earlier this year, and now it's being published here in the UK. And Chi has also written novels. He's the author of two novels, um, Edinburgh and Queen of the Night. But this is the first time that we're seeing his essays printed in this country, and they are phenomenal. So this is called How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. Yes, so it's slightly and, and, misleading. And immediately we're thinking fiction versus nonfiction. Yeah, yeah. And I think that he, I think it's a really interesting title. I mean, the essay that it is talking about is an essay about his first novel, which was autobiographical to a certain degree, but not, and he, and I don't want to kind of spoil the details, but the essay is kind of wonderful because it shows, he talks about the whole writing process and how one turns autobiographical experience into fictional work, which draws on your life, but isn't necessarily the story of your life, but obviously in a certain way mm -hmm. is the story of your life. Um, and I think it starts with a sort of anecdote of he's giving a reading about this um, uh, after the novel has been published and someone in the audience says to him, well, why don't you just write a memoir? And that sort of from that it unspores into this wonderful essay talking about the differences between them. Um, and I sort of, I, I worry that I'm giving the impression that this is a book for writers. And I don't, mm -hmm. I mean, I think it is in many ways, but it's also not. I think you can enjoy this collection of essays if you've got no kind of writing aspirations of your own. His, his so writing is wonderful. So what are your favourite themes? It is a collection of essays about identity. Mm -hmm. Chi is a, a Korean-American novelist. He's a, he's a gay man and he talks a lot about his kind of queer identity. He talks about his Korean-American identity. Um, he talks about his political identity. I mean, there's wonderful essays. There's essays about his uh, sort of early years, like as a, as a younger man when he lived in San Francisco during the AIDS crisis and his kind of work with ACT UP and certain um and, and the activism of his kind of youth. Um, and there is something of the memoir about this collection mm -hmm. as well. I think the way it's been put That's together. That's exactly how I kind of perceived yes. it. Yes. I felt that this was a way of explaining what happens when you're writing on anything personal, yeah. any personal subject, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, and what the difference is mm. in, you know, how you go about it. Mm. And having written a novel previously or, you know, fiction previously and then the memoir, I was aware, and you tell me whether that comes up in Chi's book as well, the one thing they do have in common is they both have to tell a good story. Yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, and then and this is where people will come in and say, oh, but is that story true? And if it's a story, is it actually fiction, mm. even if you're presenting it as nonfiction? Well, a good story is a good story. And a good story in a memoir is just a good story that you have extracted from what happened. Yeah. And it's your way of telling it that makes it a story, not necessarily how it happened. Mm. But it has to be, I mean, it's a different, the nuance is there, mm. quite difficult to explain. How does he approach that? Well, I think one of the things I'm thinking about while you're talking about that is just the way that he has, through the course of this collection, I mean, every single essay in it, sort of telling a story. He writes very well about you know, having learned to write and learnt on a really sentence-by-sentence -sentence level of how to construct language, but also what he's doing in each of these each of these essays here is is telling a story, and that's really important. And I think that this strikes me as being such an accomplished collection, partly because, especially these days, there has been this real kind of push towards 
autobiographical essays, you know, and people writing about stuff that happens to them, which is fascinating and all very interesting to hear about people's experiences. Mm -hmm. But I feel like there is a big difference between having something very interesting happen to you and writing about it um, in a very basic level and you're just sort of, you know, explaining that and having something happen to you and being able to make sense of it and kind of turn it in almost by, and it's like alchemy, it turns something that is kind of raw experience into an elevated form of kind of a a piece of literature that Mm -hmm. holds together. And I think that's what's struck me about these and particularly why I enjoyed them so much is that sort of each one is a beautiful piece of that alchemy that he's turned something this kind of thing you know whether it's a small thing that happened to him whether it's a very big kind of life-changing thing Mm. and thus by the end of it you get a real sense of the story of his life and the story of him as a writer as well and Mm -hmm. sort of what's made him at different points Um, and I think you know I I just think I, I honestly can't think of an essay collection that I have enjoyed more or been as impressed by in recent years. And do you years. think he's very open in, in these essays or do you think he leaves something sort of hidden? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think on the I mean, on the one level, he is very open. He's talking about, you know, very personal things. But it doesn't feel as if it's all mm. sort of brimming over with no control. There right. is a real sense of control then. I don't mean that in a, you know, I don't mean that he's holding back and, and mm. refusing to let us in. What I mean is there is a control over the way that he's structured these works. And I think that is quite important. And maybe that's another thing that I have mm. a problem with sometimes with personal essays, where it's all just like somebody has to get their experience out there. And that can be, you know, very valid in certain ways, but it's not sometimes exactly the kind of writing I want to read. Having read this, do you think it will influence you when you read his fiction? The, his first novel, Edinburgh, I have yet to read. And part of me feels a little bit upset that I read the essay about it before reading it because he talks so eloquently about how it came out of, you know, other like drafts mm. of other work that he did first and kind of what he pulled out of it and why certain things stayed and why they did, and which is brilliant to read about, but will probably slightly colour my reading of it. So I actually feel that this is a window into this novelist's mind his literary mind, we know how his mind works, we know how he looks at life, at reality, how mm-hmm. he creates literature out of it. And then I do want to see how has he actually done it in a novel. Oh, yes. I mean, there's going to be great joy um, you yeah. know, to read Enver after this and, and sort of see if... Also to see in one way of what he's talking about, the way that he makes sense of it, if that's the way I make sense exactly. of it as a reader. Um, because just because he sees it one way doesn't mean that I necessarily will. Uh, but all exactly. I can say is I'm, you know, very, very excited to read it. We all tell stories. We all make sense of our lives and stories, whether it's the small things or the big things. And I suppose that's in a certain sense why I'm very attracted to essays, whether it's reading them or trying to write them myself, is that I think it's a way of making sense of experience and also often turning it into something that that does make sense, right? Not mm-hmm. just making sense of it exactly. in your own mind, but turning it into something that actually has value to it often because things happen and you can't you kind of think well why did that happen or what's the point of it but if you can turn it into something else if you can make it into something bigger I mean I think that's why really good memoir I mean you know this isn't memoir but it, mm-hmm. it sort of has these kind of these these feelings to it I think there were some very good memoirs published over the last few years that, that do that similar kind of yeah. process of alchemy that turns something that happened into mm-hmm something that really has meaning beyond that individual experience. And that, to me, is the kind of source of good writing. You know, that's why we read. I love I love your idea of calling it alchemy. That's what happens in, you know, writing personal essays. And we have chosen essays, personal essays, as our theme for this podcast. Perfect. So there are other contributions on that subject. So 
will bear that in mind. Maybe all of them are a piece of an act of alchemy. Lucy Scholes, thank you very much for your book post this month. My pleasure. Thank you. Hello, I'm Ben Schott. I'm the author of Jeeves and the King of Clubs. And before that, uh, Schott's original miscellany, the miscellany series, the Schott's almanac series, and Schottenfreude, a very strange book about German words. This is the opening passage from Jeeves and the King of Clubs. I was idling away the pre-cocktail ennui, flicking cards into the coal scuttle, when in battled Jeeves with the quenching tray. Your whiskey and soda, sir, he murmured, placing a perfectly judged tumbler at my elbow. I thanked him with a nod, sinking with ease the six of hearts. Be it ever so humble, Jeeves, sir. There's no place like home, as I am led to believe, sir. I mean, Monte Carlo is all well and good, sir. But there's only so much baccarat man can play, sir. So many promenades he can tow along the front, sir. So many snails he can winkle out with one of those little contraptions. Pensez à escargot, sir. Before one morning, he takes a long, hard look in the mirror and asks, I wonder how Mayfair is muddling along without me. I see, sir. After a while, abroad is always so dashed abroad. What? It does have that quality, sir. Thank you for your postcard, by the by. I indicated a seaside panorama mantelpiece between the snuff boxes. I trust the gods smile down on you in Hearn Bay. They did, sir. Could you see the breeze and taste the sun? I could, sir. Did the shrimps jump eagerly into your net with lemon wedges clamped between their tiny teeth? Almost, sir. Well, I said, accidentally consigning a joker to the log basket. You seem suffused with joy, jollity and song and eager to bop life squarely on the conch. You are too kind, sir. Supper in an hour, would you say? I flipped the nine of diamonds, which ricocheted alarmingly off a lampshade. To my amazement, G snapped the errant card from out of thin air and then coughed very slightly. <clears throat> concerning supper, sir. His answer was a question. Ben Schott, welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. Thank you. I do love reading. You do love reading, or do you love love reading? Both. <laughs> Thank Could you. I say anything else? I was like, really trying to control myself very hard not to laugh out loud as you were reading. Why this. did you control yourself? Why didn't you let yourself go? Because I wanted our <laughs> listeners to, you know, enjoy your voice on its own okay. and they can laugh, you know, to themselves on their own. It is so, so funny. And it is such a surprise that you can actually read this like both characters. I could it, I could really imagine both of them in the room talking. In fact, I feel like I'm interviewing Ben Schott, the author, but also the characters in the book and also the author, the original author, who you are, in fact, imitating by writing this book. Not imitating. This is not Let's imitation. Let's talk about that. Well, Let's this is homage. Okay. And this is, it's not imitation. You sort of have to write in parallel to the master, to P.G. Woodhouse. And actually, it's interesting. It really, because this actually ties into what you said. You were kind enough to say you can hear the voices and I can hear the voices. And the reason why I thought I could write it is because actually each of the voices is very different. Each of the characters is different. I think people think everything, everyone sounds the same. It's just posh people. And it doesn't, you know. Yeah. Bertie has a style and cadence and vocabulary. Jeeves has a style and cadence. Aunt Dahlia has a style. Anatole, even Uncle Tom has a style. Everybody, all the characters actually have very, very specific 
and you can use certain words with some and certain words with others. There's a speed and there's a rhythm. So how did how did you do that? How did you prepare yourself to write this book? Well, what I didn't do was go back and read a lot of Peter Woodhouse, mm-hmm. partly because I didn't want him very fresh in my mind. I wanted almost the rhythm and the cadence in my mind. The research I did was actually for period language. I spent a lot of time reading period books of slang, uh, going through the OED, looking at words that were coined in the 20s and 30s, because it really is about the words. And when I say the words, I mean literally every single word, every single word, and within that, every syllable of every word. I mean, I cannot tell you the number of times you judge one word or another and this word or that word. So not only are there questions of anachronism, but getting exactly the right word. Mm. And it's like a bell, a single floor, and it doesn't chime, it thuds. And you get a word wrong and it just doesn't quite catch. And yet, is it exactly the same period as uh, the original Jeeves and Worcester books? So, I mean, there are experts who know much more about Woodhouse and Jeeves and Worcester than I do who will argue about the period. and of course, you know, Jeeves first marched onto the printed page in 1915, you know, in the early days of the First World War and carried on, you know, Plum carried on writing him into the 70s. So, and that's why there are lots of curious anachronisms within Plum's oeuvre. So I feel a bit more relaxed about that because if the master can do it, then I can, you know, do a little bit of it. In my mind, this book is set putatively in 1932. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it's has that is partly because of the cars and the communication in the books and partly because of the Spode character. Um, and for those who don't know, Spode is a sort of Oswald Mosley character that Plum invented to mock Mosley. And so you need it to be in that period for it to sort of have the very, very early dawnings of fascism, this sort of sense of, you know, it's mm-hmm. a beautiful sunlit upland Edwardian mm-hmm. day, but there are clouds maybe banking on the horizon for the history that we know is going to come. One of the things that's different in this book, this sort of new approach, there are, so people who love the books and people who love the books, love the books. And, you know, it's incredibly nerve wracking to even approach this project. But there are several stylistic differences I made. The first is Jeeves speaks a little more just Mm -hmm. because he's such a fun character and it's such fun to write for him. So I gave him a little more dialogue and a little more, he has a little more fun with words because otherwise the danger is he just says yes. Although there's a big difference between yes, sir, and yes, sir, Mm -hmm. and indeed, sir, the the world should shake with indeed. So he's a little more loquacious and Bertie is a little more intelligent in this book compared Mm -hmm. to the canon. I was going to say Bertie is written in this book in a different way. Bertie has is is almost like self-referential. Well, partly because I am not PG Woodhouse, <laughs> yeah. as the world will firmly attest, <laughs> and partly because I wanted to make him a little smarter. And also, so stylistically, also it just more happens. There's more dialogue. There's less long periods of mm-hmm. glorious Woodhouseian prose. There's more action. There's more plot. Partly because we're now, you know, over a hundred years on from the first one, and I just felt, you know, we are just used to faster action and faster pace. And that's as I was writing, it just felt okay. Well, let's move on. Okay, I'm done with that joke. We need more. Mm-hmm. But here is the central tension in Jeeves and Worcester, which I think about a lot. So Bertie is this bumbling fool. I think Hugh Laurie, although a genius and born to play, both of them were born to play the part. But I think the TV show that you're, that kind of I grew up with, a lot of people know, I think was a little broad. I think 
Bertie was a little too buffoonish. Which begs the question, why would someone as intelligent and wise as Jeeves spend 60 years of books hanging out with such a complete and utter fool? If it was that awful and that stupid, Jeeves would just get bored of him. But the central tension is that Bertie is a bumbling fool, fine, but the books are written from Bertie's POV. So Bertie writes the books, and the books are the greatest comic fiction mm-hmm. ever crafted in the language. Mm-hmm. So this complete fool, this self-confessed bumbling fool, is also the greatest crafter of English fiction. And that, I think, is the tension which Absolutely. drives the books. Mm-hmm. If, you had a, if you had like an omniscient narrator who described Bertie being stupid and Jeeves being wise, you would probably have a totally different feeling. Mm-hmm. But it's something about the English sense of self-deprecation. Mm-hmm. I'm a complete fool, and yet I craft these glorious books. So what actually happens in Jeeves and okay. the King of Clubs? So Jeeves and the King of Clubs um, is set in exactly the same Worcester universe. So everything that anyone who's ever read a Jeeves book, it's all there. Nothing has changed. It's the same period, the same characters, the same mise-en-scene, I think is the phrase. But I have shifted the world five degrees to starboard. And what happens is that Bertie accidentally becomes a British spy. And the reason he does this is in order to thwart Spode, Lord Sidcup, who is in the books. Mm. I mean, the idea of introducing fascism into um, P.G. Woodhouse would be horrific if Plum hadn't done it first. So mm. Spode exists as this character, this Mosley-esque, uh, black-shorted, sort of buffoonish fascist. And... His Majesty's government needs to use Bertie to help foil Spode. The caprice is that Jeeves, and this is in the original text, so there's a kind of like drawing on the over. Jeeves is a member of this club called the Junior Ganymede Club. And it's a club of senior butlers and valets and, you know, gentlemen's personal gentlemen. And what I have done is to say, to almost sort of pull back, imagine the lens pulling back and saying, ah, this club, the Junior Academy Club, was actually set up in 1878 by the then Foreign Secretary as an arm of the British Secret Service because butlers could eavesdrop on all the foreign gentlemen coming in to stay at the country houses at the private dinners. So the butlers were a source of um, useful intelligence to the British government, and they always have been. So Jeeves has always been a spy, it turns out, which kind of explains a little bit about Jeeves. Um, And then Bertie gets brought into this world that's already existed. And is he good at it? He takes to it like a D to W. <laughs> I mean, he's, he, he, he couldn't enjoy it more. I think he's slightly momentarily miffed that Jesus lived this double life and hasn't told him about it, but he's mollified by the fact that the Official Secrets Act does actually exist. But as a spy, he's still controlled. He's very much controlled by Jeeves. Well, he's not really Jeeves a spy. Tell, I know, but Jeeves tell, you know, put on this accent, do this, become this character, do, you know. Yeah. He's, he's, he's manipulating it. Well, I'm, that's too strong. I think he's making suggestions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, far bit for me to manipulate anybody. I mean, well, the book is, you know, as I said, completely delicious and wonderful, and it is set in a period that is eerily reminiscent of the time we are living in now. There is a sense of dangerous times um, already happening now, but we're not quite ready to admit that they are. Did that influence you in any way, the era you are living in right now, writing this and placing any of that atmosphere into this book? A little bit. I mean, eagle-eyed readers will notice some maybe parallels to contemporary figures. And as I say, partly I was encouraged because, you know, Woodhouse obviously had Mosley in his sights when he created the buffoonish wannabe dictator Spode. And partly because I think there are parallels. Bizarrely, this book came about because of Donald Trump. 
it's a very strange story. So I don't know if you remember in 2016, this is while Trump was still a candidate. And of course, I can't believe every conversation now has to somehow go back to Donald Trump, which is the sign of the times. Yes. So 2016, one of Donald Trump's former butlers, this is a new story, um, came out and suggested that President Obama should be assassinated, which is a federal crime calling for the assassination of a president as it should be. Um, and the Secret Service investigated and I think everything kind of went away. But I read this story and thought, well, it's not often that butlers hit the headlines, <laughs> which I thought this should happen more, more butlers. Um, so my instant reaction was to think, well, what would Jeeves say? It's like, <laughs> I really couldn't recommend assassination, sir. It seems like a drastic course of events. So taking this little story, I wrote a little short story about what happens when Trump and his butler meet Jeeves and Worcester in Brinkley Court. And I sent it to the spectator and the spectator printed it. And it was because of the... F- the, the reaction to that, which wasn't pitchforks and people, you know, you know, screaming at me down the street. There was a sense of like, oh, you know, it's not too shabby. M- maybe this is something. So then I carried on writing. So it really comes from that moment of politics. I see. That's, Absurd though it is. But that's really interesting because your first book, your first miscellany, the, the mm-hmm. book that became your first was also more or less a bit of an accident. You did something. It was a Christmas card that went terribly, terribly right. And... <laughs> And I, 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 I have been reading, I don't know if you can call it just reading because it's also watching your website. Mm-hmm. I love your website. Your website is so fascinating Thank because you. there is your writing, there's your journalism, and there is your, uh, you know, your all of your books, your almanacs, your, your miscellanies, and now your first novel. There is your design. Mm-hmm. There is your consultancy, mm-hmm. uh, which, as I understand, uh, is based on the principle simplify everything. And in a way, I find that you do that in your writing. You take really complicated, really profound and deep uh, details and you present them in a way that makes them instantly accessible and recognizable and fun. And there are photographs, portraits that you took when you were a photographer mm-hmm. earlier on. So I'm going to put something on the table now. Oh, my Lord. Tell me if it brings up any memories. Is it a puppy? I hope it's a puppy. It is not a puppy. Oh, yes. Oh, my Lord. So it, it does. Is a, it is a Kit Kat. It's my first job. Polo and Smarties. It's not it's my first job. It's actually my only job. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the only job I ever had um, was at the advertising company J. Walter Thompson. Um, who were actually in Berkeley Square. So bizarrely, uh, Bertie would have lived just around the corner from them. And that's actually one of the reasons I know that area of Mayfair yeah. so well is because I spent a lot of time wandering around. Um, I got a job in advertising after leaving university. No, I, I thought I'd better get a job. So I got a job. I left university. I went and worked for them. And I think I lasted six weeks. What have you contributed to this image? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I was a junior bag handler. Um uh, more junior than you could begin to imagine. And um, I've eaten a lot of Kit Kats and Polos and Smarties <laughs> in my time. No, I, I was way too junior to do anything creative. And how about your photography? These portraits are amazing. Thank you. Photography was always a passion. And that's what I always wanted to do. And I really should have done that originally without... Um, Going into advertising. Full mm. start into advertising. And I feel a bit sorry for them because I kind of wasted their time. And then photography, which is what... I, I taught myself photography by working in the dark rooms of The Independent. Mm. And that was back in the day when The Independent was a broadsheet. And it was the most incredible newspaper for photography. I mean, people, photographers could come in and say, hold the front page, not as a joke. And, you know, 
the Clapham Junction, I think there was, I think it was Glyn Griffiths, had a full page, front page photograph, and it was absolutely stunning. And you had Brian Harris, Glyn Griffiths, Herbie Knott, David Ashdown, and these were incredible photographers. And the joy of the independent was, A, they gave them space, B, they understood, C, they printed with much darker blacks, so you had incredible, really good mm. contrast, rather than the kind of murky greys of The Guardian back in the day. But also, the photographers became like columnists, so you got to know the photographer. So you'd know it was a Brian Harris photograph, or you know it was a Glyn Griffiths photograph, or David Ashdown, the greatest sports photographer of his time. And so you kind of knew them like you knew like Lynn Barber as an interviewer. You'd be like, mm. oh. And I, it baffles me that ma- newspapers and magazines don't do that anymore. In your first books, be- well, you published, you say, the beginning of your first book as a Christmas card. Mm. And even after that, you were always in love with typesetting and, you know, typesetting your writing exactly the way you wanted it. Do you still do that? I mean, is any of that present in this book? No. This is the first book. This is book 12, I think. And this is the first book that I haven't done anything in terms of type or design. Does Um, that bother you? Yes. (laughs) No, I mean, it's very hard to let go. I am, I am, I mean, um, I have a joke that sums me up. Knock, knock. Who's there? Control freak. You say control freak who? Okay, so that sums up my attitude towards everything. <laughs> but so, there is this. There is so, this at the end. I mean, so I, 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 I lost have... the battle of design and mm-hmm. typography, uh, but I won the battle of there are endnotes, miscellaneous, almost miscellany endnotes at the back of the book. So I won that battle. So sometimes you have to settle so for what you can get away with. So because the author of this book is not P.G. Woodhouse, mm-hmm. but Ben Shot, mm-hmm. I actually started reading it from the back. Ooh. From the end, and I started reading that may your be an error. miscellany first. <laughs> I'm not sure that should be because, allowed. Well, it kind of introduced me to something. I'm not quite sure what, but it was very intriguing to see that because I thought, okay, so that is actually what I know uh, from you as an author. And then I started reading the book, and I completely forgot about your notes. Sorry. No, no, you should. I mean, <laughs> totally. Because yeah. because the book is very, very absorbing and just pure fun. So here's the thing. I've sent it to, you know, three or four people who are very sort of senior Woodhouse mm. aficionados. And the notes I've got back were, I approached this with tremendous skepticism. And the answer is, absolutely. So you should. Who am I? And, you know, who was anybody? I mean, it's an insane thing to try to do. I've given it a go, but I didn't. There's nothing worse than trying and failing and overreaching. So I've stayed in my lane. And what I've tried to do is make all of the dialogue sing and sparkle and the plot and the absurdity sing and sparkle, but not stray into what would be pastiche or parody by mimicking his voice. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to get each of the characters' voices right, but not Woodhouse's voice. Because you can't. No. no one can. Mm. And why play? So this is very interesting because when I finished reading this, I thought, on one hand, it made me want to read one of his many novels. But more than that, it made me want to read another novel by Ben Schott. Ah, well, we'll see. I mean, I think we'll see whether, you know, this gets shredded by press and readers or whether there's, you know, appetite. Well, I didn't necessarily mean another novel in that mode, but just a novel. I don't know. I mean, I don't think of myself as a novelist. Mm. And this isn't false modesty. So I think a novel should be like a PhD, right? One of the definitions 
for a PhD to be valid as an academic exercise, it has to offer new knowledge to a specific field. It has to be new. That's the definition. And I think a novel, a proper novel, great literature, has to speak something new to the human condition. And it can be funny and tragic and serious and whatever, but it's got to be new. And that wasn't my game, my goal here. So although the end result is a novel, I didn't approach it as novelizing. For me, it was like constructing this incredible Heath Robinson machine with all the levers and pulleys and knotted rope and the words and the phrases and the characters. And there are some new characters, but lots of old characters. So it was like constructing this incredible machine, this Jeeves and Worcester machine. Now, the end result is this object that's a novel, but it wasn't. I wasn't expressing something deep about my sense of the human mm. condition. I don't think the world's really particularly interested in my sense of the human condition. It was really just this incredible game. And yes, that was so, so I don't know. But, I, we'll see. But <laughs> you can't help being who you are. And I think actually, you know, the, the Ben shot view of the world that I sensed in everything that you do, looking at your website, uh, and particularly strongly, actually, in your photography, I thought that could really lead to more writing, and I would love that. Well, that's very sweet. I mean, so I think people are generally overly interested in nouns and not verbs. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it occurred to me that everything I do is essentially about understanding, distilling, and then presenting complex information. It doesn't really matter if that's a newspaper article, a profile, some graphic design, a logo should be about that. You take something really complicated and you find a piece of graphic and you create something that you instantly unlock something, it clicks. There's a smile in the mind, to quote a great phrase. Those are the verbs. And the nouns could be a book, it could be, you know, a piece of writing. It doesn't really matter what the nouns are. We get too obsessed with nouns. You know, what do you do? I do this with mm. nouns. But it's really, what do you do? And it's like, you know, for me, part of the joy is going, researching, knowing, and then opening up these bizarre areas of the world. Just me writing about funny people in a drawing mm. room, well, mm. not so much fun, but putting them somewhere strange where there's a whole world of gentlemen's clubs or gentlemen's tailoring, mm. that's fun. Writing this, it's like solving a thousand crossword clues a day because every single word is an opportunity to get it wrong or an opportunity to get it so right that it just takes you to the next word in a really fun way. Ben Schott, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for the uh, Kit Kat polos and Smarties. I see you can take these home. Take them home. Thank you. They're your gift <laughs> from Love Reading. Acts of Alchemy, a term coined during my conversation with Lucy Scholes about the intriguing process of writing personal essays. What happens when a novelist explores his or her own life, seeking to translate its themes into a nonfiction narrative? We heard very open and insightful takes on autobiographical writing from each of our guests discussing their recent works. Chibundo Nuzo's dazzling performance, 1991, at the South Bank Literary Festival, and Olivia Sajic's brilliant personal essay, Exposure, published in paperback by Peninsula Press. And we found a different type of literary alchemy in Ben Schott's novel, Jeeves and the King of Clubs, published by Hutchinson. A pitch-perfect yet mischievous homage, or is it homage, as Jeeves would say, to the great humorist P.G. Woodhouse. On another note, 
the Love Reading Very Short Story Award 2019 is now closed. Thank you for all your submissions. Our shortlist will be announced soon. Thank you to all our guests. This podcast was produced by Alex Raymond with original music composed by Alex Raymond. Find us on Twitter and Instagram and follow our blog at www.lovereading.co.uk. I'm Elena Lapin. Thank you for listening.